Well, good morning, church. If we haven't had uh, the chance to meet yet, my name is Jan, and uh, my husband and I are the lead pastors here at Eastside. And today we are continuing in our series called Worship in the Wild. And um, this is where we are discovering what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about worshiping in the wild, my mind immediately thinks about wild horses galloping in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, completely unbridled and free, just running wild. I think of standing there, uh, right there with them, I think of lifting my hands, I think of lifting my voice, I think of singing out at the top of my lungs into the cool mountain air. This feels like worship that is uninhibited, unrestricted, unrestrained, totally free, and holding nothing back. Now, if you happen to be a parent of a small child, you know what it's like to live with someone who often acts and speaks without restraint. I remember uh, we were taking um, our daughter when she was two to uh, America for American Thanksgiving, and we had just boarded the plane, and uh, we were going to spend the holiday with my in-laws. And as I was busy storing all of our luggage uh, in the carry-on uh, compartments, she proceeded to stand on the seat and sing out the American National Anthem <laughs> at the top of her lungs with great expression and passion as all the other passengers were boarding the plane and finding their seats. She was completely uninhibited, completely unafraid. She didn't feel shy. She wasn't fearful. She held back nothing, and she just sang with all of her heart. I also remember when my son was four, and we were um, forced to stay overnight in Denver because our plane had some mechanical issues, and so we missed our connecting flight. And unfortunately, we had to stay overnight um, in the hotel without our luggage because we had already checked our bags and they were in the holding tank or wherever they put them. And they just said, we can't release them back, so you're just going to have to, you know, go without. And so the next day, as I was busy trying to find our seats on a very full plane on the next flight out, our son prose uh, proceeded to stand in the aisle and to scream out at the top of his lungs, announcing to a completely full plane that we had to sleep naked last night <laughs> because we had no luggage. He was completely uninhibited by any sense of embarrassment. Now, both of these are expressions uh, of inhibition, not being inhibited, not being restricted, not being restrained. One, of course, very precious, and the other one, not so much. <laughs> now, as Christians, we know that we've been set free by Jesus. We are free to worship him. There are no limits to what we uh, are allowed to do in our worship of God, um, but I've wondered, is it possible? Is it possible that we could worship God in a way that 
is not so pleasing to him. You know, um, maybe we think it's pleasing, but, uh, but God is sitting there going, not so much. You know, not so much. And so if that's the case, I've thought about it for my own life, and I've, I definitely don't want to be that person. I definitely don't want to be the one offering worship to God that is not pleasing to him. So the question is, how can we know what is pleasing and acceptable worship to God? Well, we can look at the word of God, of course. So join me. I'm going to take you through the scriptures and highlight a couple of passages and show you uh, what I've discovered. Uh, Let's start in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verses 3 to 5 says this. And when it was time for the harvest... Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. So we read about it. That in the beginning, we know that there are Adam and Eve, and they had Cain and Abel. And it came time for them to offer their offerings to the Lord. And so Cain went and rounded up some of what he had. And Abel offered the first and the best of what he had. And it says that God was pleased with Abel's offering. He was pleased with the first. He was pleased with the best. And he was not pleased with just some of whatever Cain had left over. So our first clue to what is acceptable and pleasing worship before God is that God wants the first and the best of what we have. This is what is pleasing and acceptable to him, the first and the best. Now let's move farther down into the word, into 2 Samuel chapter 24. And I'll give you a little bit of a history lesson on what was going on during this time before I read the scripture. Now, this is a time when King David was leading the nations, uh, the nation of Israel, both Israel and Judah. And at this time in history, it says that God was not pleased with the nation of Israel. They had been rebellious and they had been doing some things that were not pleasing to the Lord. And so he allowed King David to be persuaded to call for a census or a count of all the people. Now, most of you reading that might think, well, so what? What's the big deal? Uh, Well, apparently it is a big deal and uh, you shouldn't be counting the entire nation unless God commands you to do it. But in this particular situation, David was persuaded to go ahead and command his officers to go throughout the land and to do a count. And it wasn't until after the count had had been taken place and the census was done that David's heart was troubled. And he recognized because of conviction that he had made a mistake. And he knew that he had done this uh, out of his own will and out of his own uh, decision, out of his own pride, possibly, and, and not because God had asked him to do it. And perhaps, you know, I've pondered why he did this and, and what could have been going on. And 
I thought, well, perhaps he was worried. He was worried that he didn't have enough strong fighting warriors. And so he wanted to console himself with the strength of his army. And so he wanted to know how many able-bodied warriors did he have because he was counting on the fact that he had enough strength in his army that if they were attacked or if they needed to go and attack, they would be victorious. And so in this case, then he was trying to find a feeling of confidence in the strength of the amount of people that they had instead of looking for maybe God and for God's strength. So his prophet comes to him and says, okay, uh, this is what the Lord said. Uh, here, are your, here are your choices. You messed up. Here are your consequences. You can choose one of the three consequences. And so the first consequence was you can choose seven years of famine. Or you can, use, you can choose three months of being chased by your enemies. Or you can choose three days of a deadly plague. Uh, so none of these are great choices, of course. Uh, but David uh, contemplated it very seriously, and he decided that he would choose three days of a deadly plague. And the reason is, is he believed that falling into the hands of God would be much more merciful than falling into the hands of their enemies. And so he decided, let's just do the shortest and the quickest and hope and pray that we fall at the mercy of God. And so he chose the three days of plague and the plague was released. And in one day, that first day, 70,000 men died in one day. And when the angel stretched out his hand again for another time, another wave of the plague, it says that the Lord relented and changed his mind and stopped the angel from continuing the plague. Now, David was very troubled, obviously, because in one day it wiped out about roughly 5.38% of his population. And so he was moved to repent, and he was moved to intercede for his nation, and he was moved to call upon the mercy of God, and he went before the Lord and he said, God, let the wrath of what I've done fall on me and my family and not on this nation, because they were innocent. It was me that made this decision, not them. And so his prophet came to him a second time, and he said, okay, here's what God said. Go to the place where the plague was stopped. And this happened to be the threshing floor of a man named Arauna, the Jebusite. He said, go to that place. This is the very place where the Lord restrained the angel's hand from continuing the plague and build me an altar there and worship before me. So the king uh, readies himself and he goes to Arauna's land and he, uh, Arana sees him coming. And obviously he's very concerned because he's like, why is the king showing up on my land? You know, what's going on here? And so he bows down very low before the king and he says, uh, my Lord, wh why are you here? Wh what can I do for you? And David said, I want to buy this land, this threshing floor, and I want to build an altar and I want to worship God because I want to end the plague. Now remember, 70,000 people had just died, so Arana was probably very, very interested in helping the king. And so he, with great 
Excitement said, oh, my Lord, please, don't worry about buying the land. I'll give it to you. In fact, I won't just give you the land. I'll give you the oxen that you're going to need to worship. I'm going to give you the tools to kill the oxen, and I'm going to give you all the wood that you need to build the altar and to prepare the sacrifice. I'll give it all to you. Just say the word. And it says this in verse 24 of chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. It says, David said this, no, I insist on buying it. For I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David bought the land, he bought the oxen, he bought all the tools, he bought the wood, and he prepared the altar, he built it, and he killed the oxen and he sacrificed them. Uh, and it says that the Lord heard his prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn. See, King David understood a key principle of offering sacrifice, and that is this. You don't offer sacrifice to God in worship that does not cost you something. Let me put it into perspective for you for 2023. It'd be like if you went to an event and you got a door prize uh, for attending this event. It'd be like a really cool one too, right? Uh, and you decided you were going to re-gift that door prize that you won for free at an event that you attended. The door prize might be amazing. It might have been a TV. It might have been, you know, just an incredible gift. But it's not really that valuable to you because it didn't cost you anything. You were already attending the event, and you just happened to win it as you walked through the door. And now you're re-gifting it. It's a nice gift but it didn't cost you anything. And David understood that wasn't going to fly as he offered worship before God. And so the second thing we can learn about how to offer pleasing worship before God is that worship has to cost you something because that is what is pleasing and acceptable to God. Let's move on and look at a passage, a very familiar one in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 7, in fact. This is a very familiar story. You've heard it before. You've read it before. You've pondered it before. Let's start in verse 36, and it goes like this. One of the Pharisees had asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept on kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, in this story, it seems a little bit odd, but it's an interesting story if you examine what was going on. It was a room filled with religious people, Pharisees, very well-educated, very uh, good reputation people who were hosting Jesus for a dinner. And somewhere, this woman, who didn't have a very good reputation, comes into the room and begins to make a bit of a scene. She takes a wooden box, it was a very ornate box, and she smashes it open. 
And this box, by the way, of alabaster perfume, some of the scholars believe that it was worth a full year's salary. And so it was worth a lot. And she smashes the box, and by smashing it, it was made out of wood. It would have splintered into a, a million pieces. And so once you open it like that, you're not, there's no going back. You're not taking any of it home with you. She didn't have any Rubbermaid containers with her where she could scoop it up and save some and, you know, maybe pedal it later on and make a little bit of cash. She had to pour it out completely once she opened it. And she was kneeling and weeping at Jesus' feet. Now, we know that they wore sandals. They, it was a very dry terrain, lots of dust and dirt. And they would have been walking through, you know, animals had walked down the same street that they did. So there were things in the street that they were walking through. And so feet were not, you know, nice. They weren't pedicured and clean. You know, they were dirty. And she was washing his feet with her tears. And she was using her hair to wipe them clean. And she, was, uh, she couldn't stop crying. And she couldn't stop pouring this out uh, over him. It was very, very uncomfortable because it was a room full of people. There were, there were other people watching this happen. The act of her worship cost her a year's wages. It cost her her time and her energy. It cost her her pride. It cost her her dignity. Uh, in all of this and what she did, she did not consider her own lowly position. She did not think about uh, where she compared to other people or she didn't, she didn't worry about that. It, it's clear that she didn't care what they thought about her. And uh, she didn't even consider her own feelings nor her own appearance because her hair would have been filled with dirt and mud and whatever as she was wiping Jesus' feet. This was elaborate, passionate, expressive worship. This was worship where nothing was held back. It was not restricted by fear. It was not restricted by embarrassment or shame. It was uninhibited, unrestricted, unrestrained worship. So we know that God wants extravagant worship from us. Worship where we don't hold anything back. Nothing held back. Once we open up, we pour it all out because this is what is pleasing and acceptable to God. So what does it mean for us today in 2023? Because last time I checked, um, we're not buying threshing floors. Uh, we're not chopping up wood and we're not killing oxen. And we're also not smashing up expensive bottles of perfume. So what does it look like for us now in this day and age to offer up worship that is pleasing and acceptable to God? Well, we can read in the scriptures, starting in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, for you are a chosen people. He's talking about us. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
See, before Jesus came to the earth, there was one high priest for the whole nation of Israel. One high priest. And it was his responsibility to offer up sacrifices on behalf of the entire nation. And so he would do this to cleanse them from their sins and their unrighteousness and to make it so that the wrath of God was not poured out over them. But when Jesus came and he was crucified for us and he was raised from the dead, it says that the veil was torn, the curtain was torn. What that's talking about is in the tabernacle, there was a curtain that separated the inner court from the Holy of Holies. If you went into the Holy of Holies and you were not the high priest and you went in at the wrong time and you did not have a blood sacrifice that had been done to cover you and to clear you of your sins, you would immediately die. You would be struck down and immediately die. In fact, they would put uh, bells on the bottom of the high priest's robe so that they could listen for the jingling of the bells because they knew if the jingling stopped, the guy was dead. And they had to find a way to maybe hook him and pull him out because you don't go in there, whip open the curtain and pull him out. You have to figure out how to get him out without going in there. So it was very serious business, the Holy of Holies. You did not just walk in there. But when Jesus came, this is what he did for us. He made a way where we no longer need a high priest to go into that room once a year for us to prepare a sacrifice that will cleanse us. We now can walk right in before the very throne of God because we are all now priests. We are all now priests of God. And we are called to offer up sacrifices before him. Yes, good news. So Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 says this, Therefore, because of this, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. As priests, we are called to offer up sacrifices of worship, continual worship, not animal sacrifices on an altar of wood, but daily sacrifices of praise and worship. And Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 1 says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable, because this is truly the way we worship him. So this is what we can surmise from all of these scriptures. We are all priests now. If you are in Jesus, you are a priest of the Lord. And we are all called to offer daily sacrifices. Daily sacrifices of praise and worship with our whole bodies. Everything inside of us. When I was four months pregnant with our son, some of you know this story and some of you don't, I had my first ultrasound. And uh, at the ultrasound, the the doctor said, you know, um, do you mind coming back in a couple more months when you're a little bit farther along, a little bit bigger? Uh, We just want to check something out. We just saw this little flash of light, they called it. 
and we just want to check on it. It's probably nothing, but we'll just check again in a couple months when, when the baby's a little bit bigger. And so um, I was trained in, in the medical field. I was a registered nurse for many years. And so uh, you don't say those things to registered nurses <laughs> because my sleep already, I was on high alert. I was, it was disturbed. I was already anxious because I knew that's not really a good sign, even though they tried to downplay it. To me, I'm like, that's still not a good sign. Uh, but I didn't really know what it meant. And so um, six months pregnant, my next ultrasound, a routine ultrasound should take about 30 minutes. I was there for four hours. And uh, at the end of the four hours, after the half an hour, I started bawling because I knew. And the poor technician can't say a word because they're not the doctor, so they can't say anything. But the room was very sad because they didn't have to say anything I knew. It was not good news. And so the diagnosis was a congenital heart defect, something called transposition of the great arteries. And what that means is that off of his heart, the aorta and the pulmonary artery were reversed. And so that's not, that's not good. Uh, it's fine when, when they're in utero because there's a natural hole in the heart, and so blood can get through, and their circulation system is different when they're growing inside the uterus as compared to what ours is when we're breathing air. Um, but this condition meant that once he was born, he would not live uh, because the hole in the heart would close up, and then blood would never, uh, oxygenated blood would never be able to get to the body uh, it would only be blue blood or blood that needed oxygen going out to the body. And so that's not a condition that you can live with. And so they said, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to be checked a lot. So, um, and then you're going to have to move to Edmonton uh, when, when the baby's going to be born, and then he's going to have to undergo open-heart surgery when he's born. And uh, open-heart surgery is quite serious. It's, it's when they open the sternum and the rib cage and everything, and they go on a bypass machine, and it's just like you would imagine, horrifying. And um, so for the next three months, uh, for two times a week, I had to go in, and I was poked I was prodded, I was measured, I was hooked up to machines, and I was analyzed. And at each visit, they strongly, strongly, by the way, these are the best doctors in our province, I was strongly encouraged to abort the baby at each visit. Because they told me that the chances are that if he's got this kind of a problem, he probably has a whole laundry list of other problems. And so, um, did you really want all that trouble? Uh, why don't you just save yourself the grief and we can just get this over with right now and end it and you can just go on your way and maybe have another child later on. And so, of course, I, I didn't do that. And at the end of my pregnancy, we packed up our three-year-old daughter and we moved to Edmonton and we waited for the birth of our son. And after five hours, thank you, Jesus, of a normal delivery, a normal delivery, 
uh, they immediately took him, they intubated him, which means they put him on a ventilator and they whisked him away to another hospital. And I spent that night alone in a hospital, uh, desperately wondering how my baby was doing and what they were doing to him. And uh, the good news is, is that uh, he was so strong that they didn't need to operate right away. They could wait until he recovered from delivery and get him a little rested before they did open heart. And so four days later, they took him to the OR where he underwent a six-hour open heart operation. At this point in time, um, I had only been allowed to hold him one time for 30 minutes in four days. Uh, so it was a little touch and go for us. And uh, I was a shell of myself. I really was completely empty. I had never been more broken or discouraged in my entire life. I did not want to be nice to anybody. I did not want to talk to anybody. I did not care about anybody else in the world. At that moment in my life, I only cared about myself and my baby and our family unit. And so I probably wasn't very pleasant to be around, uh, but I was really discouraged. It was the lowest part of my life. Um, it's fair to say, kind of like right now, I was a hot mess. And so um, I had a decision to make. Thank you very much. Here I was in my life journey. We were youth pastors, and I was broken, and I was scared out of my mind. And uh, I had all this medical knowledge, and all this information that I could, I knew all the horror stories around what could go wrong and what was going on. And then I had my faith on this other side. And I had a decision that I had to make. In my life journey, I had to decide, am I gonna lift my hands? Am I gonna lift my voice? And am I gonna sing out my praises to my God? Am I going to do it first? Above every fear, above every decision I make, above every bad news from the doctor, about every, above every circumstance that I found myself in, am I going to still do it? Is it going to be above that? Am I going to do it when it costs me my money? It costs me my time. It costs me my energy cost me my pride and am I going to do it wholeheartedly holding nothing back not even one ounce back even when I'm coming from a place of brokenness am I still going to do it am I still going to pour it out even when it doesn't feel like I have anything left to give and am I going to do it Monday through Saturday every day of the week, not just on Sundays when the whole church comes together and it feels right and it feels good and it's easy to worship because you're encouraged by other people who have the same faith, but can you do it? Am I going to do it by myself when I'm the only one there 
sitting beside the incubator, watching my son try and survive and heal. Am I still going to do it? And so I ask this question to you. How about you? How about you? Because I know that's my story, but you have your story too. You have your circumstances. Maybe you are having a bad day today. Maybe you've had a bad day at work. Maybe you had a bad week at work. Maybe you, have, you work for a difficult boss. Maybe your boss fired you. Maybe you are fighting with your spouse. Uh, maybe your children are mad at you and don't want to talk to you right now. Maybe you are being threatened by the bank and they're going to take your home or your car or something that you have that you can't pay for. Maybe you are struggling with the news of a very bad diagnosis and your faith is being shaken right now. All of us have a journey. All of us have a story, a set of circumstances that we're facing. And in all of that, regardless of what our circumstances are, we still have to make a decision. Are we going to worship? Are we going to lift our hands and lift our voice and sing out with everything inside of us praises to our God. Above every fear, above every painful moment, above every horrifying circumstance, are we still gonna do it first? Are we still gonna give it all to God? Because my friends, that is worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God. It's worship that costs you something. It's worship that is uncomfortable. It's worship that is first, above the best medical advice you could be getting. It's worship that's above that because that's where God is. And that's what he requires of us. So let's stand. No matter what we're facing, no matter what your story is, no matter where you're at in your journey, you still have a decision to make. Am I going to offer my worship and do it so that it is acceptable and pleasing to God?